I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show you have your your drink we all have our drinks we are ready to embark on this journey this wild adventure Mm -hmm. so many so many so many damn books Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I am Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Jonathan Lethem in the damn library with us <laughs> today. Um, Jonathan Lethem is a card-carrying genius. Uh, they don't um, give you a card. They actually. don't? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it wears off. Oh, yeah. It's like the, the uh, MacArthur thing is like um, flowers for Algernon. Mm-hmm. You, oh, you, you no. start out. <laughs> you know, but years later, you just can't even remember all those big thoughts that <laughs> are gone. You can barely read and your back, own writing. You're back, to, you're back to being stupider than a rat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that that's true uh, because you're, uh, of course, a very accomplished novelist and writer. This is your, I think, 21st book or 22nd? Oh, yeah. Books are hard to count. Yeah. Uh, it's my 11th novel. That's the easy number. Yes. And then there's a, yeah, there's problems. There's like three story collections and three and a half essay collections and mm-hmm. two tiny little books about you know the monograph on yeah there's talking the, heads and so somewhere and they live in the yeah. in the 20 category um, yeah 20 zone and you're the most most recently the feral detective thanks for having me um we're so happy to have you here to talk about um this new book and your work because we are um massive fans yeah we did we did an episode at one point where both of us realized we had never read motherless brooklyn i guess about a year ago Mm -hmm. and that was when we were like wow how did we miss this one yeah it's a weird one to miss (laughs) why don't it just seem too obvious you're living in brooklyn and yeah (laughs) it's sort of the book that yeah it's kind of on the nose (laughs) (laughs) i um i remember when i was i actually listened to fortress of solitude and i was living on dean street when um when i was listening to which block of dean uh, Dean and Kingston. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah. not very close. Yeah, to not quite there. Dean's but, a long yeah, street. Yeah. But it was a it was fun to be slightly immersive. Yeah. Um, in my listening experience, uh, I'm feeling the effects of this drink. Do you mind if I talk about it? Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm calling it uh, the Tamed. Uh, it's inspired <laughs> by the Feral Detective. That's um, funny. Which is partially. Um, I mean, it's set in California, it's partially in Santa Cruz, and there's this great um, uh, lemonade company, Santa Cruz, or their ju- a juice company. Yeah. And so this is Santa Cruz Cherry Lemonade, um, Dark Rum, <laughs> Aperol, Grapefruit Juice, uh, and Spicy Bitters. It's very smooth. It is smooth. Oh, it's tamed. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so um, 
the funny thing is, you don't know this, having just devised the tamed, but for the launch party, the first event on what now seems years ago, it was just a few weeks ago, for this book when it was published on um, November 7th, uh, I had a big Inland Empire party right near where I live and where a lot of the book is set. And the the restaurant that, that hosted the party, the bartender devised a cocktail called The Feral. Mm. Nice. So this is so, the answer. You could have Which actually, both. it looked, it had the same kind of uh, salty sweet uh, and, and, and rust colored. Mm. You know, it was in the same, it was sort of a, designed to be like a desert drink. Yeah, that's sort of so, what I was yeah. thinking, um, that it could double as just something you could, it almost tastes like fancy jungle juice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Do we want to talk about sure, let's books do, we bought? Yeah. How about you start? I start? Yeah. All right. The first one is a really exciting one, and it relates back to the drink in that it's called the Cocktail Codex, um, and it's by Alex Day and Nick Fochald. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. And they are the ones who are behind Death & Co. Um, and this Cocktail Codex book, I'm really excited about it because the idea is all cocktails are actually derived of six, like, base recipes Mm -hmm. and then you master those recipes and then you can make any drink ever interesting um and it's like the martini the uh the old-fashioned that i can't remember all of what the um, base drinks all are but i'm very excited to get started and then the other um the other book i bought or it was a give given to me we're in the midst of um the christmas season and my girlfriend is being incredible and giving me little gifts on each day leading up to christmas which is lovely and one of them was hark the herald angels scream which is a collection of <laughs> horror themed christmas stories um put, put out by blumhouse the, oh um, of course the, of course um that uh jason blum who is a uh jason yes uh, and uh, he does you know all the horror movies um paranormal activity is was his like that was him oh i think i didn't realize that. maybe it produced by them anyway uh so that is those are the things i bought or were given nice yeah jonathan well um one thing that uh i'm very excited i just i just um ordered it and i'm waiting for it to come is uh milkman the the book that just won the the booker um and um what's her name anna anna burns uh, burns yeah I mean, I've just been hearing all these intriguing things about it, and and some people I know who did read it already in the UK are telling me how much I'm going to love it. So, that's that's on my mind. It's like my pleasure reading as soon as I'm done teaching next next week. Um, but um, I also just uh, ordered an, an older book, uh, Charles Olson's uh, study of Moby Dick called uh, "Call Me Ishmael," mm. um, where he uh, his his big theory is that. Um, Basically, Melville uh, madly plagiarized King Lear, and he's going to prove it in his in his uh, this 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 book, which I'm excited about because I love I love Moby Dick and I love King Lear and I love plagiarism. So I'm hoping that <laughs> all of those things come together beautifully in this uh, little Olson book that I've been I've it's, I've known about it for years and I've just suddenly realized it's time to read it. That's a man. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Yeah, I, I see it. I I don't know if I do, but that's interesting. Even just. 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I think like it's I, to... I think it's on the language level. It's like soliloquies mm. and 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 oh. things that Ahab says, and you know, it's it's really about huh. not not like the overarching plot, right? Because obviously there are no daughters in Moby Dick, but <laughs> but that it's um that that he just like had it open on his desk and was like pillaging language. Wow. Uh, for oh. it. Yeah. So huh. literal, like line by yeah, maybe true, line by line true, plagiarism. The, yeah, wow. yeah, that's interesting. No, no, no mild plagiarism from Melville. <laughs> You're right. really going for the top, heavy dude. No, we, <laughs> yeah. well, we just had um, Preeti T- uh, Tanisha on the podcast, uh-huh. and she did that King Lear um, translation. She calls it uh-huh. so. Uh, it's on our minds in a different way too. Cool. Yeah, um, Drew, um, I picked up this book, My Sister, the Serial Killer, uh, by Oyankan Braithwaite. Mm-hmm. It's got a, it's this lurid green type font on the cover and this sort of interesting photo of like a, an elegant looking woman with these red sunglasses and there's a, a knife reflected in it. And it's this woman whose sister keeps maybe accidentally or maybe on purpose <laughs> killing the guys who she gets involved with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just like everything about it. I'm like, yeah, this seems like it could be funny and smart. It's short. Um, I'm really excited to... It's gotten a bunch of great reviews this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a debut author, so I can't wait to see, like, yeah, what do you got? Great. Yeah, cool. So shall we dive in? Yeah, let's dive into um, into your work. Do you want to talk about what Feral Detective is about for people who mm. uh, who don't know yet? Yeah, so well, it's a it's a hard-boiled detective story in the sense that it has a very archetypal opening. The client walks into the detective's office and hires him to find mm-hmm. a missing girl. And what could be more generic? And it's set in Southern California, which is also a very typical environment for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, there's a lot of bait and switch in this book because just when you think, oh, it's going to be the detective story, it's really the client, the woman mm-hmm. who walks in. She has the the voice, and she's doing the first person narration that you t- typically associate with uh, the hard boiled detective story. So that itself is a peculiarity. And she's a New Yorker and finds the entire situation kind of absurd and alienating. Um, but she also, uh, to, much to her uh, dismay, she finds herself really attracted to the detective, who's this sort of scruffy, uh, middle aged. Uh, guy who who is known as the feral detective and is not what she thinks of as her type of human being let mm-hmm. alone uh romantic partner but um she's plunged into this investigation with him and then a kind of a romance with him and they move into this desert space which is real and unreal at the same time it's it a kind of a lot like am- amnesia moon actually. yeah absolutely a, yeah. amnesia moon and girl and landscape are both at play for me in this book mm-hmm. and that's to say it has to do with archetypes of the desert and how that's a space where you can explore uh utopian possibilities and self-invention and anarchy freedom mm-hmm. and anarchy and you know the american promise of getting off the grid and yeah sort of starting something new and um i mean then that pretty much describes the book except for the one other peculiarity, which is that I did something I have never done before and would hardly advise one of my writing students or myself ever to do, which is uh, set it absolutely in the present. So I used the backdrop of the Trump election and inauguration as the sort of, uh, you know, like there are certain movies where 
there's some news event playing on the TVs in the backdrop of every mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be a bit like that. Yeah, it's a weird uh, gambit because it, you know, uh, everyone's first thought is, oh my god, that material is going to date so rapidly, or you know, how do you how do you keep it from uh, making your fiction seem pointless that there's mm-hmm. this uh, real world context in it? But I decided that this particular voice and book could be, uh, you know, hijacked in a way. I let it be hijacked by uh, a certain amount of Trump anxiety. Well, how did you find that balance? Because I I remember hearing about the book and being like, yeah, this feels like a great idea to hear somebody like you writing about this moment. Mm -hmm. But also, how did you stop it like... Trump and everything around him seems to just take up as much space. Yeah, of course, you know? it fills so much space. And my answer was that at the same time as the election exists in the book and it's placed in time, you know, the book actually takes place five days before and five days after the inauguration. Mm-hmm. It's extremely indirect because it's a book about running off the grid. Yeah. Well, they literally can't like check their cell they phones. Can't even get, yeah. They can't even get signal. And a lot of the people she's dealing with are people who are in this like, third space where they are not red or blue they just don't know or care that anything important happened for them it isn't important it doesn't bear on the place that they uh inhabit right Mm -hmm. and that's a bizarre thing to contemplate and it's bizarre for phoebe the narrator to deal with but it's as much a book about the fantasy of running out of this system of binaries male female east coast left right you know east coast west coast uh blue red and just getting into some other kind of Space, which is, you know, a, a enticing and dangerous uh, fantasy to try to indulge because you do tend to bring your baggage and your old templates into that utopian, anarchic, empty, you know, uh, reinvention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tends to be dragged in along with you. And, and, of course, the world that she meets in the desert does have a lot of echoes of this outside. Right. Yeah. American space. But... But I'm not going straight at the Trump stuff. I mean, there's it's not like any anyone political in any real sense is a character in the book, let alone politicians. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not portrayed. They're just it's just like a it's like the weather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, it that's is. a great way. Because I, as I was reading it, I did find myself drawn back to that mindset that I was in at that point. And just like it, it did feel like clouds, like electric clouds mm-hmm. hanging around and the way that Phoebe's kind of like. I can't believe this shit is happening. Yeah. And yeah. that I'm dealing with this other completely ridiculous shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the Feral Detective is this California novel. Um, and it seems like it's your, uh, you've written New York novels a lot. And now you wrote a California novel, but still filtered through a New York it's a New Yorker coming to California yeah this one this is actually uh as near as I've come to really kind of bridging because uh the you know Phoebe's voice is really that of a New Yorker exploring that space and bringing all the prejudices and and you know um the kind of ironic uh sensibility that usually doesn't play very well that people don't people don't get your irony in California (laughs) very easily um but yeah, I mean, I, 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 it, and I think it's, it's, it's actually, depending on how you look at it, you know, my career ends up being kind of west than east, 
then west again because I, I I lived when I was living in Berkeley in my twenties. That's when I wrote my first four novels, and all of those take place in some version of uh, the desert or the west, mm-hmm. um, but or you know or or California. But they're also very much kind of silly putty mm-hmm. renditions. You know, uh, the futuristic Oakland of of uh, Gun with Occasional Music and the kind of uh, road movie comic book dystopia of amnesia moon you know it's route 80 it takes place in wyoming and Mm -hmm. and utah but i was so new to the west coast at that time and also my work the way i wrote about place was different then Mm -hmm. i i was very still very turned on by it and the localities meant a lot to me but i was so much a surrealist you know and so everything was transformed into this kind of um you know uh morbid pop art landscape kind of like a jg ballard version of of california or, mm-hmm. or 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 the west and and that held true until i moved back to new york city and began writing about brooklyn and then i got in a way i got anchored because of reminiscing about growing up in borham hill and uh wanting to use the real place names and and write about the schools i went to i suddenly learned how interesting i could find it to write about places in a much more uh kind of um factual way anchored mm-hmm. in real histories and and more making them more more recognizable whether that was a present setting or a historical setting which you know in some ways both fortress of solitude and distant gardens eventually are historical novels chronic city and my Lewis brooklyn are kind of you know s- slightly estranged present day <laughs> versions of brooklyn and manhattan mm-hmm. but they're recognizable in a different way and so then i had this decade of writing about new york and learning how to write about place. And now I'm back in California. And so doing this again, it's very different. Um, I've, I've, I've skipped, I've skipped one. The real outlier is the, the, the fake, uh, Silver Lake book that I wrote. Uh, <laughs> you, you don't love me yet. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which is set in LA technically, but, and it's, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of a romantic comedy set in a, a recognizable LA. But the truth of that book is that it was really, a transposition of my life in the Bay Area. It was mm. about, it was about the the Mission, right, uh, district in the '80s when I was living there in San Francisco and hanging out with with rock bands and sort of, you know, slackers, San Francisco <laughs> version of slackers when they could still afford to have slackers there. Sure, and um, and I just kind of moved it to Silver Lake because it was a way of, uh, of of surprising myself and not writing a, a nostalgic book. I just finished Fortress of Solitude and I didn't want to do another memory trip. So I wanted to kind of take those people and those feelings, but plop them into another framework. Um, but here I am now nine years into living in Claremont, which is at the edge of uh, San Bernardino County, where San Bernardino meets Los Angeles County. And it's kind of the, as I conceive it in the book, I really live on the the doorstep of the desert, mm-hmm. you know, Joshua Tree and the Mojave and places like Palm Desert, Palm Springs are right, right there. Mm-hmm. And that's what has come to fascinate me. And I think in some ways, you know, it's so different, but in some ways, e- even though it's a a surreal book in certain senses, and it's also a hard-boiled detective story, and even though Phoebe's a New Yorker who is a, is a stranger in this environment, I am trying to write about it with some of the same scruples that I learned to apply to New York mm. uh, in that period, you know, uh, 
of writing about realer, realer places. It's also interesting to think of this book um, in conversation with all of your other work, which it seems like you're doing a lot um, yourself, that you're always thinking about like how they how your work talks to each other. I, I have become more open to that. I used to think of the books as um, totally uh, enclosed and and that, you know, because I was so restless and wanted to write different kinds of books, I would think of them as just sort of sealed entities. But, you know, seven, eight, nine novels, and I think I began to notice the helpless degree to which they 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 were repeating despite my efforts to always uh, start anew a mm-hmm. as a writer. And then I thought, well, if they're doing it anyway, let me play with it or be more aware of it or uh, consciously control it. So I began to um, let that element become one of my, uh, I don't know what it would, you know, one of the instruments in the band, sort of like, oh, and here's, here's this, here's this place where you can hear it calling out to this mm-hmm. other thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to, especially just to think of Gambler's Anatomy, your last uh, novel, in conversation with this one, because that one's sort of this almost like fabulous, picaresque sort of thing. That, and then this is also, but it's it feels more contained somehow. Um, and maybe maybe I don't know why that is. Yeah, no. Structurally, I think this book is one of the most contained. I mean, it's it it's it's like Motherless Brooklyn in the in the sense that it takes place in a small number of days. Mm-hmm. And, and it also, has a zendo. Yeah. And it has a zendo. But also, <laughs> the voice never switches. You know, right. I mean, Gambler's Anatomy isn't a long book, but it has tricky point of view mm-hmm. jumps and time jumps, which was typical of also the book that preceded it, Dissident Gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this book is, you know, if you think of like the Greek dramatic unities, mm-hmm. time and space, you know, it's really, there's a, there's a really clear proscenium arch. It's kind of like mm-hmm. the... You know, Inland Empire, Into the Desert, five days, one voice, and really also one or two actions. There's there's the notion of rescue. There's a chase scene. There's there's a missing person. Mm-hmm. And this is a much more unified kind of experience. And I, you know, I also, I wrote it fast. I wanted it to be unified by uh, my not changing and changing my mind a lot as I wrote it. I wanted it to be like one thing. And I wanted it to be... Uh, something you could read fast that that might you know if it if it clicked that it might be a compulsive you know read because it has so much velocity kind of yeah co- mm-hmm. cooked into it yeah something that I was interested when I finished this book was just how um just how many places you've been in novels, like how many, how many places I've, I've been with your characters. I like that. (laughs) Um, and I was sort of just curious about, uh, are you, are you sort of like mapping your career or at this point, this far along with so many books in your belt? Like I was talking to someone uh, the other day and they didn't even know I was going to be conversing with you, but they said that they, um, they would like to have a career like Jonathan Lethem. And I was like, oh, very, very Uh, sweet to hear. That's great. uh, And I was curious, like, you know, are you thinking like, oh, I want to be like this person or you pass that now and and in in this new space? Oh, I mean, I, you know, I had all sorts of fantasies early on and then exercised them or 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 exposed them or 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 they just became outmoded by things that happened that I didn't plan. You know, I 
I'm just, first of all, anytime you begin talking about your career and with the idea that there's some sort of deliberate or, uh, you know, that you have a self-possession of this experience, it starts to, starts to sound really, really pretentious and, <laughs> and, and, um, and, and, uh, and like you are, think you're the maestro of something that you're really not. Mm-hmm. I am lucky to still be publishing novels that anyone, you know, cares about after starting so long ago. I mean, Mother, uh, Gun with the Cage of Music came out when it, when I was 30 in 1994. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, I had this sort of uh, crescendo when I, I, I won a couple of awards with the Brooklyn Books, you know, around right around the the turn of the century uh, <laughs> and that even that's a long time ago you know so that i'm that that was you know motherless brooklyn was my fifth novel i mean you know how many people get to have a fifth novel right. well i'm i'm working on my 12th with a guarantee of publication at least mm-hmm. you know and and just now my 11th has been given a very rich you know complicated Welcome, a lot of readers, a lot of reviewers, and that's incredible. Mm-hmm. What crazy fucking luck to be <laughs> this person, right? Yeah. And also, even on around the edges of that, all I ever wanted to do was write novels. Well, I got to do that, but also the weird prolif- proliferation of other experiences that have attached to that that were inconceivable to me as ambitions or desires even. You know, that I'm here with you guys in this weird podcast. What is this? How did I know this would happen? And, you know, and that like, you know, that I briefly got picked up because I was writing about a music critic in Fortress of Solitude, Rolling Stone magazine decided to send me to interview Bob Dylan and James Brown, or mm-hmm. you know, or that I've just gotten invited into so many interesting opportunities to, to weigh in on things and write essays or reviews about different stuff. I never had that ambition, so I have had a lucky career and life to this point, and um, not under my command or design <laughs> by any means. When I started out, I really. My heroes were, uh, in many cases, people like Patricia Highsmith or Philip K. Dick, uh, who or Charles Williford, or 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 J. G. Ballard, who, if they ever got kind of le- legitimated, it came later. They were published kind of ignominiously or mm-hmm. in paperback originals, or they were sort of under the radar for a long time. And I mm-hmm. really expected that my appetites, my interests, were going to n- necessitate that. And it seemed cool. It seemed like that would fit who i right just being big in europe right yeah right right like maybe in print in france and you know i don't know um i didn't really uh anticipate very many of the things that did come about honestly Mm -hmm. Uh, i was just so excited to start to to get to play the game you know i'm not gonna write a novel and someone's gonna publish it that's amazing yeah and um so i i i like by the time of motherless Brooklyn and then the kind of opportunity both as a the creative opportunity that fell on me to take a longer time and write this really different kind of book for me that changed me as a writer a lot to write the fortress of solitude I was so there I was I'm in my mid-30s I've already outrun really all of my visualizations for my quote-unquote career Mm -hmm. I'm like in way out ahead of my skis i'm like well okay what i could do whatever i want to do because i already got more than i was looking for and um and so i you know when you ask did i have models i did there were certain writers like thomas berger who i idealized 
specifically for their refusal to repeat themselves, mm-hmm. their interest in play and variation. Italo Calvino suggested that to me as well. Yeah. And um, so I've always kept that promise that I would do different things. And and in fact, I I couldn't have predicted how many different things I would want to try. Or also, as I incorporated new models of what interested me in mm-hmm. fiction, I... Um, I, d- I discovered new ambitions. You know, I, when I was in my 20s, presuming to, to start out, I didn't like all the things I now like. So I couldn't have wanted to write a book like Dissident Gardens, say, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, uh, I, you know, I, I just, I, I certainly couldn't have wanted to write all the essays and uh, th- that, that was, that was growth. Mm-hmm. It was just growth in my not you know i don't mean in some kind of grandiose ma- sense of maturity but just the growth of my appetites mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fortress was turned into a, a wonderful musical by um a dear departed friend of mine mm. and i wanted to yeah. just say thank you for dedicating the book to him oh sure. i opened well, it yeah. i opened the galley and started sobbing uncontrollably when <laughs> mm. i saw michael's name um, yeah. but reading it, I was like, God, he would have really, he would have gotten a kick out of this book. <laughs> and there was something so, um, I don't know. It, it put me in the present in a way, just thinking, I mean, this book is set in a very present tense yeah. way. Um, fuck, I don't want to cry on the show. I know. Um, but I, know. I just, I what really a bitter loss. It. I mean, what a, what a sad loss. So Michael Friedman was a, he was such a gift. Uh, he came into my life because of that project and i you know i just didn't know what had hit me he was so brilliant and so sweet and so saw my book from such an extraordinary x-ray kind of inside view that taught me things about myself really Mm. uh because that's a very personal book and yet he was he was in the songs he wrote for it needless to say a a talent that eludes me utterly i could never have a have done anything on that level that would have unfolded i mean it's a book about music but that's as far as i go i can write about music (laughs) he made music out of it and Mm. i mean in the truest sense i feel like he took the muscle and the bones of that book and made song Mm. and that was what a crazy piece of luck for me to experience that right i'm gonna cry in your show now (laughs) um well, and I highly recommend everybody listening to please uh, check that. Go find this music, The Fortress of Solitude. Yes, the cast sounds, recording it's, exists, it's, and it's man. fantastic. It's, um, yeah. it's better I than got, my, it's better than my book. Thank, <laughs> thank, go, um, thank goodness, that, uh, Drew got me tickets to go see yeah. it. So. I'm glad you yeah. guys saw it. Yeah, that's it's, nice. It's a great show. Yeah. Um, so um, there was something further I was going to say about that. Oh yeah. Well, so the immediacy part of I mean, it's it, you. You made me think this when you said the book. It put you in the present because it was a book that I wrote fairly quickly and I was also depicting the present as I wrote it and you know things like Leonard Cohen's death mm-hmm. became part of it because I was running and picking up the reality around me as I went and you know Daniel and the other two names that are the dedicatees in memory of are people I lost you know I mean you can dedicate a book to your dead grandparent who you lost when you were seven or you can I often dedicate books in a sense to parts of my past, but it made sense with the feral detective that these were losses that were fresh wounds. Mm-hmm. And I was name it was like naming the present 
to put their names in the front of that book as well. Mm -hmm. Do we want to um, pivot to things that aren't so fresh that are that, per perhaps that are very much not the present? <laughs> because you brought a very interesting, you know, not what I was expecting. I was I was honestly expecting uh, another. I don't know. <laughs> Like uh, a Parker novel. Or yeah. Something. Oh, yeah, yeah. That I would bring a detective novel. Yeah. I made me. I misunderstood the assignment. <laughs> no, this is the best version. Oh, like, yeah. So okay. this is the. Um, you brought the 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 pillow book of Sai Shonagon. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to. That's. I my... always say say Shonagon, but I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> and probably no one knows how her name is pronounced. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and so it's and it's the. Um, well, why don't you tell everybody what what is? Why did you bring it to us and what is it? Well, about? I brought it to you because it's been my. Uh, it's been my Bible in the last year or so. It's just the book that I can't stop picking up and using as a kind of talisman and rereading it and um, reading it aloud to people, which uh, is really, really fun to do. And um, and it's almost like a, a, a an oracle. I, I, I use it to f understand how I'm feeling sometimes. Uh. Um and but so what is it? It's it's a very unclassifiable book. It might be one of the most unclassifiable classics that there is it 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 um it's from the uh it was written in in around the year uh 966 or or later nine, i guess 990 nine, 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 yeah, that's it, nine, it, it started in 990 and yeah. finished in a thousand and two yeah right <laughs> which i like uh, <laughs> it's really good so um it takes it takes uh, literary history from the three figures to the four figures, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's written at court, Japanese court, and it records d daily life and impressions of a of a woman who was uh, a part of the court of a minor empress, right. in in Japan in that period, and it's uh, resolutely whimsical, uh, digressive, mm -hmm. um, incidental. It doesn't try to do any totalizing thing. And you can read it from beginning to end and kind of play at it being a novel, or you can dip into it and delve and reread the sections you like. And I have sort of read it both ways. Um, and it, you know, it could be seen as a, a template for a kind of um, some of the one of the kinds of autofiction that that people are excited about now. You know, mm -hmm. kind of the Sheila Hetty or uh, or we were talking. Before we got on mic about Heidi Julian, this is the uh, the folded the clock. folded clock. Um, it's yeah, because it's a collection of thoughts, impressions. It's sort poem, of diaristic. Yeah. It's sort of meditative. And it's and there's an oblique quality to the way the different pieces stack one against the next, mm -hmm. and that space, the implicit space between these different kinds of utterances in the book, becomes charged and very intriguing. Well, I mean, it kind of it. If, to me, it kind of does what it says on the box. I mean, it's a pillow book. It's something like you're you're uh -huh. getting um, your ideas from the day or your thoughts from the day out into. And I can totally see like, oh, I'm going to, I'm setting out on a thing. I'm going to talk about the seasons every day for for two weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, one of our uh, Patreon patrons, uh, when we said we were going to be covering this book, said, "Oh yeah, that's like a, a Tumblr from the 990." <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's um, right. It is sort of like that. Yeah, except very... that pr proposes that maybe it's just one example of a great number of things. Right. And one of the weird things about the pillow book is that, in some way, it seems to imply the existence of pillow books per se, mm -hmm. and yet. 
there are no other pillow books. It's right. like she did the, you know, it's like a Tumblr if there was only ever one Tumblr. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it was really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's gratifying to hear you say the the dipping in and out thing, because when I went to pick it up, I had trouble finding it in Brooklyn, uh-huh. which was weird. But finally, I had to go to Barnes and Noble, and I was like, "This is the book. I'm pretty sure it's going to be in like history or mm, memoir or yeah. something." And they're like, "Oh no, that's in fiction." And I was like, <laughs> "Different book. It's got it." And yeah. and so I I picked it up with that intention of like, okay, maybe I should treat this like a novel. And I as I started reading it, I was like, "Wait a minute, I'm I forget which it was a relatively early section where she was going on about like her day." And I was like, "This is boring. What if I skip to the next right. little numbered entry?" And that. When I did that, it freed me up it, in such a way. It, absolutely, it, it, you have to, I think, uh, let yourself wander into it. And but this instability in it—fiction or history—or do I read it consecutively, or do I dip dip into it, or what am I meant to do with it? Uh, how did it come to be? You know, there mm-hmm. are different versions of it, mm-hmm. not just tr- many translations, but there are actually sort of like the way there are different folios of Shakespeare's plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by the time it was. Uh, being transmitted in a regularized form, there were several versions of mm-hmm. it. So it has that quality of an ancient text that there's no simple, um, you know, stable right. version. You know, well, something like Aesop's Fables has the same problem. Like, yeah. there's, there's no one book that's the definite, absolute Aesop's Fables. You know, and the Pillow Book is not quite as unstable as that, but it's it 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 moves. It, and and it's interesting to me. I was looking at the um, translation history, at least into English. Mm-hmm. And there's there was one. I mean, people have been interested in retranslating this book for years. I mean, one of the first ones was in 1889. Yeah. And then 1928. Then 1967. Then yeah. 2006. Like people are. And I think it's the 29 one. I'm forgetting uh, the name of the guy, but it was a kind of a f- famous, but also very pretentious sort of Japanologist, mm-hmm. Western Japanologist. And his version of it, which I own, is incredibly presumptuous. It cuts out all the parts he's not interested in. Right. So it re- <laughs> reduces it se- severely. And then 90 pages. he intersperses his own uh, very ponderous thoughts about who Say Shonagon was in the middle of her own book. She's like, and now she's doing this, and this is why this is interesting. He's just mansplaining the entire book to you. <laughs> you know? And by the way, I threw out most of it because it's not that interesting. And yeah. <laughs> that, this idea of, of a book being unstable is such a cool thing. I, I went, because I was curious about, and we didn't ask you about which translation we would necessarily talk about. Yeah. Um, and I, I did some research online, and this new-ish Meredith McKinney translation, uh-huh. everybody's like, it's the most respectful one. Right. But even in her introduction, she's like, there's some stuff I didn't want to include, but I felt like I had to. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. things that my editor was like, cut this. <laughs> and that, yeah. it's just, we do think about it, you know, with a handful of tech, like it is Aesop and Shakespeare. Right. And it's cool to broaden that sense of, of the way that we're trying to capture our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it also reminds you, of course, that translation, even when we accord it a false stability it's you know any translated book has has a has a uh, a very strange uh you know um uh, the you know if you quote from it mm-hmm. you're quoting words that someone else made up right? right decisions that someone else made there's this in, you know and so with texts we want to have be very canonical like kafka mm-hmm. you know they get re, you know suddenly someone will retranslate and you realize <laughs> that oh 
someone actually imposed a lot, you know, like the 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 Muirs, the first translators yeah. of Kafka, in, imposed a kind of Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. uh, language to a lot of his philosophical language, where mm-hmm. he was writing a writing in a kind of existentially, uh, you know, um, searching voice. They would almost always opt for uh, language choices out of the German and into the English that suggested Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. uh, the- theological kinds yeah. of thinking. And so it just changes Kafka completely. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, you know, and yet he's such a touchstone. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, it's, um, we just had um, the Icelandic author Sjön on the show. Uh, and he was talking about that Victoria Cribb, who is his longtime yeah. translator, um, that he needs to keep her on her toes and is worried that she's like making, she's like a better writer of him than he is. Yeah. Cause he reads her sentences and it's like, Oh, that is, that's very good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he really likes the way that she writes him, which yeah. is so well, which this, is interesting. This, these things happen. I mean, there's this, you know, the legend of um, the, uh, I don't remember whose assertion this was. Maybe it was Nabokov who was always very sniffy about certain reputations. Uh, he said, he, he, Nabokov says that Dostoevsky is a much poorer writer than anyone except Russians know mm-hmm. but he's a he's a he's a, a a really bathetic and sloppy writer of Russian and every translator of of Dostoevsky invariably improves him uh-huh. so that in his reputation in English and French and German is much higher than it is in in his native language wow now you know that may just be rivalrousness but I've also heard, <laughs> also heard this said about um Edgar Allan Poe that his reputation in France is inflated because Baudelaire translated. Oh, Poe. Sure, and wow. that, um, that would do it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever t- experienced any of your work in other language translation? Mm-hmm. Well, I can't read other languages, <laughs> so I don't. It's always a mystery to you. You have your hand, book handed back to you, and, and it's it's weird. It's like your object, your creation that's been rendered mute to mm-hmm. you. Uh, but you hear from people, oh, this is a very good translation, or oh, there's some... or it, you, People will almost never criticize a translation to you, but you'll know that they have some qualms about it because they'll ask a question. They'll say, so did you like this translation? <laughs> or, or do you agree that this phrase or that like the title, that it should be called this in this language? And... So, you know, one of the interesting things was early on, I've lived long enough to be translated sort of pre and post Google. Mm-hmm. And I wow. used to get into so many more back and forths with my translators because sure. specific factual trivia, you know, weird. I make a lot of weird minor references to things, cultural references in my work that would send my translators into, you know, into a tailspin and they'd have to get in touch with me and then we'd end up in these exchanges mm-hmm. so then I felt that I was providing a sort of small but regular service where I would sort of clarify certain references now they're much less often hmm. inclined to be in touch with you because they can um, they can search for context and uh, and and identify obscure references so so they're like oh when they're searching something they can be like oh this isn't some some strange turn of phrase of his like this is a brand well that's (laughs) it no the question often used to be uh is this something you made up or is it a reference that i don't recognize that that no one in my country would recognize because they just wouldn't know Mm -hmm. right and sometimes it was one or the other uh but also um 
Along with those would sometimes come small interpretive questions. And the irony is that because the list of kind of references doesn't need to be sorted out as much, I'm not, I'm also not getting the small interpretive question. So I don't have as this tiny but regular hand in the translator's efforts because I think contemporary translators are just not inclined to go to the publisher and ask for contact with the author now. Right. They don't need to. Wow. I wonder what that has to be like for somebody like Meredith McKinney, who's translating something that is over a thousand years old. And she's like, I don't have anyone to ask about yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, there there you have a different field of context. I mean, if you're retranslating the pillow book, you've got four or five other people shot at it. Mm-hmm. So look at and think about what, why, you know, why did they make this choice? Now you're going to use a more contemporary language than someone from the 19th century or, or from 1929. But you'll still see what they thought was important about the sentence and why, you know, how to inflect it or what, what meaning they thought should be imparted by it. So, you know, whereas someone translating my work or most anything is, is never doing a retranslation. They're, they're, they're out there in free space making it for the first time in right. that language. Yeah. So it's a wild book. I, the reason that the folded clock is out and came up is because I'm rereading it uh-huh. and Heidi mentions it at one point And it is, it's like, this is the prime mover for so much. Yeah. And I'm so it's it's one of these books we've had this experience a couple of times where you start wondering how many people have this book on their shelf right. Right. and how it has influenced yeah. I think the Beats read the pillow book. Ooh. Yeah. I think that um it was a talisman among, you know, uh Ginsburg and Kerouac and company. I just suspect that mm. uh was was the case. And yeah. that, and that poets maybe in that vein you know kind of the the naropa institute poets because it's also eastern mm-hmm. and it, though it's not a spiritual work at, at any level i think it may have gained a kind of allure and prominence with just because of the japanophilic tendency of of you know west coast and black mountain and and beat era poets to me yeah. it's, you know. it sort of blows up this idea um you know what you were talking about worrying about with um mentioning trump and things in your book uh-huh. and, and being like oh that'll date it it's right. just like there's no way to not date your work like everything like dated to language nine, nine. Yeah. language is embedded in yeah. reference yeah so, specificity so like um you know sh- she was writing about people and things that we don't know that we just can't possibly the care concept, about concept but and, yeah. yeah but so. there's something in her voice that just brings it all completely so that's what life. you yeah. really need to remember as everybody who's worried about timelessness of yeah. their work <laughs> it, no there is no way that an object made of language can be like an abstract painting or a classical symphony and just be outside of language cultural mm-hmm. metaphoric reference points you yeah know? Should we um, should we recommend some? Should we go some to recommendations? Get yeah. some talismans out to the other people here. Oh, that's a nice, <laughs> nice transition. Thank you. <laughs> we read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah. Uh, Drew. Okay, I have a couple. Okay. Uh, and all of them are things that I read after The Feral Detective, and I sort of, it, I hit them like boom, 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 and it, they all seem to be speaking to a similar thing. Um, Idra Novi's new book, Those Who Knew. I'm just finishing it. I've got yeah. it in my bag. I love that book. It's so It's really, good. really incredible. Um, yeah. 
I, I just like it's yeah that's really exciting and she's doing cool things with form I mean I'm a theater geek so I uh-huh. love the fact that there's there are these scenes that are written there are scenes that are written like a play script um, but it's also it's grappling with male power it's grappling with the ways that the United States in particular has interfered with basically everything mm-hmm. uh, to the south of like Florida yeah. Um, yeah. and it just it, but it's also it's like gripping thriller in the same way that this is a gripping thriller but both books are so much more than a thriller mm-hmm. you know? well i'd love to be compared to that book i'm really uh really taken with it and um now i have to go and see what else she's done because mm-hmm. uh, it's the first time yeah and she's her. a translator which right I think she's is also cool. a translator yeah um, mm-hmm. yeah and then a book in translation um gabriella aleman this book poso wells i don't know it uh it just came out from city lights books it's a i think it's her first book translated into english um it opens up it's set in i think it's set in ecuador but it's a sort of unspecified south american country um there's a an election going on and the the leading candidate and like everybody in his campaign uh, in a freak electrical accident, they all get electrocuted, and the one guy who's left disappears. And they see that he has wasn't burnt up with everybody, but he disappears. Um, and meanwhile, all of these women in this town are disappearing. Mm. And again, it's like two or three strands that all come together. It's super absurd, um, but again, it's it's thinking about the same things. Uh, and it's an it's an older book. It is by no means recent recent um the original the original language version of it but again it made me think about this political moment and the way that uh that fiction can speak truth to power Mm. in ways that i think sometimes certainly sometimes in the english-speaking world we take for granted Mm -hmm. um and then the last one is a non-fiction piece it's a podcast the wilderness which john favreau who's does pod save america um it's him basically being like how did the Democrats get so far out into the void and what can we do? And he just, he interviews a shitload of people. A friend of mine did the soundtrack for it, which is how I even knew about it in the first Mm -hmm. place. But it's a really compelling, sometimes very difficult listen, Mm. but very worthwhile as we sort of start to triangulate. Anybody who is on the left starts to triangulate what moving forward looks like. Mm. Um, But all of these things in like three weeks, I, consumed all of this stuff mm. wow it was a it was quite a three weeks yeah <laughs> uh jonathan well so um you were talking about disappearance and it reminded me of a book i read recently that i really can't get out of my head that i'm 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 thrilled to to get to mention uh to you guys here um it's called the town by sean prescott and it's a first novel and he's an australian and it's in the mode of, you know, uh, comparisons are always odious, but it's in the mode of early Steve Erickson or, mm. or you know, maybe a, an early Paul Auster novel like um, In the Country of Lost Things uh, or, you know, or, or also J.G. Ballard, but it's, it's, it's a little less uh, violent or disarranging than J.G. Ballard is. And that's to say it's this sort of, you know, English language version of a kind of spare allegorical, uh, you know, existential mystery, basically. Cool. Mm. Um, and it's and it's about a time when towns are disappearing 
And, you know, it seems like when I first was uh, offered a chance to look at it, I thought, oh, is this still, you know, this is sort of familiar, or it's also got a little bit of that Calvino, Invisible Cities or something. Uh, this this allegorical mode, can that still play, you know, or mm-hmm. it, has it been done? And it's such a beautiful rendition of this mode, which is a mode that's very attractive to me traditionally, you know, that I grew up loving, looking for more books like this. And it's a, a perfect rendition of it. And at the same time, it updates it in a way. There's something about it where it catches a different feeling, and it's a feeling that's a little more political, and it's kind of about, like, you know, post-neoliberal precarity. It's, like, about um, the collapse of the present. Cool. And it's just, I just think it's um, it's it's done so well and so... Uh, without it's not strenuous it's not claiming a lot but it just sank in so deep for me mm. um, so the town that's my sean prescott awesome so that's my sounds great yeah christopher well i'm gonna recommend um it's it's a new favorite book of mine that i i read and devoured very quickly it's short so you can um it's it's called 15 dogs by and andre alexis and um I love dog books. I love d- books from the perspective of dogs. It's one of my absolute favorite things to read. And this one is uh, 15 dogs perspectives. And so the way that it works is um, the, the plot engine is two gods uh, decide to have a bet. And they give these 15 dogs um, the power of human speech um, in a kennel. <laughs> and then overnight they escape and they form a new society amongst themselves and you follow these dogs. It's brutish. Um, if you really, if you don't like descriptions of dogs being terrible to each other, I don't <laughs> recommend this book. Um, and if you don't, if you want to preserve how you think dogs think of you, um, I also <laughs> don't recommend this book. But um, the way that this all works, and the way that the dogs talk to each other and look for each other, and there's this one dog that, as soon as he's given the power of speech, becomes a poet. And all of them sort of um, can't get his words out of their head. And they, great. they all hate it <laughs> um, in a way. <laughs> um, and so it's a very, it's a fascinating novel. It, Had you read Andre Alexis before this? I haven't. He's really good. And weirdly, if I just got a galley of his next book, which I'm very excited to read, but I hadn't even heard of this one. So, I, of course, it sounds related to Kafka's um, uh, Investigations of a Dog. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you know that? I don't. Novella. It's one of Kafka's strangest and most uh uh well sweet and strange pieces and that's saying a lot for for kafka but um he doesn't always do sweet it's (laughs) well the the narrator is this uh dog who has a a a, an affliction which is a gift which is that he can't see human beings so he's trying to fathom the behavior of his species um while not understanding that they are a slave species to Mm-hmm. Uh, this other because he can't perceive them so uh he sees what he calls floating dogs which are lap dogs mm-hmm. <laughs> and he wonders how the floating dogs float and he sees dogs in circuses but he thinks they're just spontaneously doing what they do without any mm-hmm. any trainers and he sees hunting dogs and he sees the society of dogs and he he describes it with this incredible uh sort of existential questioning because mm-hmm. he cannot 
believe how diverse and weird his species is and what they do yeah. and, and the patterns. And he just wants to really, he wants to get it. Yeah. And it's a great, it's, it's, it's marvelous. This one was marvelous in the way that half the dogs um, decide they have to abandon speech, this new gift that they're given. We have to be like dogs, only like dogs. And, and so they form this weird tribe of dogs that have forgotten how to be dogs. So they're playing as dogs, right. <laughs> which is really weird. And then the other half, like, you know, go off on their own and have their, it's, I mean, like I haven't the bears had and this, the rabbits of dogs. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I, it really is. Um, I, 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 I'll find that. It I can't great. believe how good this book yeah. is. Um, it really, and it shows the power of why you would even want to, take a book from a doc's perspective like it really cool. there's a reason for oh it. good I'm, I'm yeah i'm excited that's great cool. well that's uh that's all the print that's fit to news indeed um jonathan thank you so much for joining yeah. us um in the damn library we really appreciate you and your and your work and uh, and yeah everyone out there um we would love as a christmas gift from y'all um, uh, <laughs> iTunes reviews we really appreciate that um, we also appreciate when people sign up for our Patreon uh, patreon.com slash smdb and we're actually um, going to be donating everything uh, that we get in our Patreon for de- December uh, to we're not sure which uh, charity or charities or if you have suggestions yeah please tweet at us email us so many damn books at gmail.com we would yeah we're we're in a giving we are in the giving season so we're we want to give away some stuff you can also give us recommendations Uh uh-huh criticism yeah all the things and um anything you want really and you know go read some stuff on lithub.com oh yeah uh because because we like them we do uh and we are part of them now like the borg exactly the borg of books <laughs> um <laughs> yeah now that's it that's all yes it. uh goodbye everybody. bye everybody yeah thanks